0: This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Judge Ruchi Fryer, the United States first Hasidic female judge as well as an activist how are you, Judge Fryer?
1: Thank God, I'm doing just fine.
0: So, tell us a little bit about where you're from, uh, what you your early life was. I know that you did not take the uh, conventional trajectory to the bench. So, tell us a little bit about where you are actually from and, and what your childhood was like.
1: Very nice. Sure. I was born in Crown Heights. My parents moved to Borough Park when I was about a year old. I went to Beishakov Elementary School, Beishakov High School, Bechakov Seminary. I went on the Bishakov tour of Israel. So I guess what you can say is I'm a true blue girl. Um, I was an average student. I loved school. I loved living in Borough Park. And during those years that I was in high school, there was no college opportunities for religious girls. Because at that point, we didn't have Turbo College, which now caters to the Orthodox religious community. And my high school offered a course in legal stenography, which was a great opportunity to work as a legal secretary. And make a good living, and I wanted to marry a boy that was going to sit and learn. I wanted to marry someone that was going to be a Talmudic scholar, and that would be a great way to support him and things worked out well. I got good jobs and I advanced and i went I moved from a legal secretary to a paralegal and it wasn 't until I was thirty years old with thirty three children born when I realized you know what I really want more i don 't want to be a secretary my whole life, but i didn 't want to compromise on any of the values that were important to me. Having a family was important, being a good wife, being a good mother. Being the best that I can be at home was paramount to me. But at the same time, I started to feel this yearning of something more, something more. Not that that anything was missing, just I just wanted something more. And um, I did it very slowly. I started taking classes first, just on Sunday in Toro College. So my BA took me six years during the same time, I was still working, still having more kids. By the time I graduated, I had three more kids, so I had six kids. And then my dream, just like it happened, I got into law school, and that was another four years. And just basically, once I saw that with God's help, I was able to graduate law school, I said to myself, well, what's the next step? <laughs> and I said, well, why not go for a judgeship? Because you need to be a lawyer at least 10 years in New York City. To be qualified to be a judge, that was my goal, and I kept on saying, always, always, over and over again, if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. So you just have to try.
0: So much to unpack there, and an incredible journey. I think quite unusual. Uh, just to start, you said that you you were really a what you call the quote unquote typical Bais Yaakov girl, which you know all right. girls, elementary, high school, seminary, you know, right. post, post high school. When you use those words, what is what does that mean to you? What are some of the values? That are evinced when you describe yourself in that way?
1: So, Beishakov girl is a girl who's raised in a traditional Torah environment, um, a girl who's religious and observant. The Beishakov ideology, of course, was not just to teach Judaism, but to make girls actually love being Jewish and being proud of being Jewish and understanding that everyone is created for a purpose, everyone that's that created, it's created in the image of God, the Salaam Kim. So I graduated high school knowing that there's a reason why I'm here in this world. Some girls know what their talents are when they're still in school, and some will find out after they graduate school. But I knew that I had a purpose in living. So, you know, armed with those ideals of being proudly Jewish, I had always questions when I was in high school and my teachers were amazing. They always answered my questions. I had great rabbis in seminary. We were really prepared for the outside world when, when I graduated the Siakho High School and seminary. So I had those religious values. I was proud to be identified as a Jewish girl. And I knew that I had a reason. I knew there was a reason why I was put in this world, and I wanted to find out what that was and do the best
0: I can. It's so interesting. I mean, you seem to have this inherent restlessness to you this an irrepressible need to continue marching forward and not to just be satisfied with the status quo or with where you are stationed at any given moment where do you think that that comes from like I mean many people might become a legal secretary and that's it they're happy or a paralegal and they're okay like what was going on within you that was sort of urging you on prodding you to say no more more
1: you know, I think it's really part of these religious values that I have. You know, if you, I love learning of Avos, chapters of the Fathers. And if you read what they teach us, it's like, Hayom Katser, the day is short and the work is great. There's so much to accomplish. There's so much that can be done that, you know, that we don't even reach a fraction of our potential. It's not that I'm restless or unhappy. I'm always wishing to think, like, well, what more can I accomplish? What more can God help me achieve? Should I aspire to for more? So it's not like I'm ever unhappy in my position. It's just that I believe that there's so much that we can do, right? I mean, they just open up, you know, all the work of Chapters of the Fathers, and you'll see it, you'll see it like one after the other. It's like, what does every phone say? You don't have to finish the job. Just start, make an effort. I will say, in a place where there's no, no one standing up to take care of something, you do it. So it's all these inherent religious values that are always in the forefront of my mind, like, well, what else can be done? And once I did achieve the position of being an attorney, I felt a sense of commitment, responsibility to the community, that if I would hear of an issue that needs to be resolved, I felt like, well... God gave me this opportunity. He gave me the ability to get through law school. Now he gave me the ability to achieve greater heights in the judicial field. What can I do to give back? It's not that I'm restless. I feel obligated. I feel obligated and committed and so grateful to God for the opportunity. And I love my community. I love living in Barapak. I'm so proud that I live in this Hasidic community, that if there's something that I can do to make a difference, I have to at least try.
0: It's fascinating because you know I think a lot of people with similar sort of drive or aspirations uh, like yourself, very often I think it, of course not always, but but in many cases it may express itself as almost a form of rebellion, meaning this is my community, but I'm also going to do X, y, or Z. but in in your story, I hear much more of a, a synthesis where you're very happy with your community and with your maybe call it primary or or initial Station or role, and yet you want to do something else in addition. Has that been something that's been important for you to emphasize to people that this is not a quest that is outside of your community structure or despite your community structure, but is really an outgrowth of it?
1: I mean, great question because I always say that change doesn't come from the ones who leave, change comes from within, and there is no perfect community. As long as we are human beings, we're going to have faults. I love my community, but I will admit that we are human beings. And the fact that we may have issues makes us just like any other community. But I won't leave because we have issues. <laughs> no, this is too important to me. If we have issues, let's see how we can resolve them, because that's really what God wants from us. He gives us challenges and the tools to fight those challenges.
0: What's been your community reaction to, to all of this, and, and your family reaction, maybe more particularly When you said, I'm going to pursue a bachelor's degree, then a a JD, and then ultimately, you know, aspiring for a judgeship, and we'll get into that a little bit, what was the reaction each time you were taking one of these really unique and exceptional steps? So
1: you have to understand this is a journey of more than 30 years. So none of these steps happened as a sudden surprise. By the time I took that step, it was already a given. Like, okay, come on. You mean mean you're not a lawyer yet? How much (laughs) longer was it going to take you? It was just like very natural. I did it very slowly and always with my family support. And every step of the way was a family project. Every step of the way was discussions and with my parents and my in-laws and how do you feel and what do you think? And of course, my husband as well. So nothing came as a sudden shock. Everything was a very, very, very slow process.
0: What were some of the challenges you must have encountered? I mean, was it time management? What were the formidable challenges at each of these stages as you were, again, in this sort of growth process? You mentioned you had six children Mm -hmm. at the time, probably all fairly young. When you were starting your, your degrees, what difficulties, if any, did you encounter along the way?
1: I think the same challenges that every Jewish woman has, and no different than anybody else. We know we call them like raising children, ear infections, strep throats, whatever anybody else deals with. That
0: should be dealing the worst of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> dealing, dealing with exams and dealing with work and dealing with going to the doctors and I I, I don't think I was unique in any way from any other woman dealing with the same things that we all deal with. I don't see myself standing out in any way whatsoever. Some women would when you know and I have friends who pursued degrees whether it was in accounting or in the therapies. I think I just pursued a degree that was a little bit out of the box. But there are many women who did go on to higher education. The fact that I did it very slowly made it possible for me to achieve a degree in law, and if I would have done it very quick, I would have had to pursue something that could be done in a, an accelerated program. Where did you go to law school? Brooklyn, Brooklyn Law School it was a great program. It was very close. For me. <laughs> I did. I had to be close to home. I had to. I had. I was limited in many ways, but it was for a good reason.
0: So it's, I'm so curious. You know, I asked you how the reaction was in the community. What was the reaction, though, outside the community, meaning you you go to a law school class, you're probably at this time, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years older than most of the other classmates and looking different and coming from a very different background. How did others receive you? Did you ever encounter prejudice or just general confusion, <laughs> confoundedness from, from people that you met? I think that by the
1: time I went to law school, I was raised, really, like you said, an older student. I had already had lots of experience working as a legal secretary and a paralegal in the outside world, the secular world here in New York City. So I was familiar with the secular community, and I've been, always been very open. I always felt that I'm proud of who I am, and I always proudly identified myself as the wife of a chassid, mother of a Hasidic family and I find that when you're open and you own up to who you are people will respect it so I actually got respect from the people that I worked with and I learned how to explain what it is that I do and why I do it without offending other people and at the same time being welcoming to questions because when you open yourself up to people's questions you could break so many stereotypes. And I would invite professors to my house. I would invite fellow law students to my home. I guess we call that outreach, right? <laughs> I, I always love, I love doing outreach. So, you know, my natural instinct of sharing my religion. I, mean, I have two women lawyer friends who are religious just because of my journey through law school. Wow. So I felt that I think anything that you do in life, it's, a lot of it is just like, my mother always says to me, you could tell anybody anything. It's how you say it. So, if I tell somebody, please don't be offended, I'm placidic and I won't shake a man's hand, and you say it with a smile, you're not offending the person. Mm. So, it just, it's all a question about presentation and how you feel and how you make the other person feel. But that only came because of years of experience. It wasn't like I was 23 years old, curled into law school, and dealing with these types of issues. I was already close to 40 by the time I made it to law school.
0: And a lot, so I a lot think of experience.
1: Yeah, life experience and children and marriage and all of that comes with dealing with issues. I don't want to say problems. I want to say issues because life is a series of issues. As long as you're alive and you're breathing, you're gonna have issues to deal with.
0: You mentioned issues, and I know from the reading that I've done of you, and just kind of as a you know an observer from afar over the years of personalities within the, the Jewish world, I've read so much about many causes that you became passionate about well before I believe you were um, a judge and maybe before you were a lawyer as well. I'm not sure you'll tell me, but can mm. you describe some of the causes that you got involved with? I know urgent medical care was something you were okay. involved with, uh, maybe abuse in the community, different things like that. Can you describe some of those causes, what grabbed your attention about them and, and sort of how you got involved with them?
1: All right. So it's really quite simple. When I started law school, that was the first time that I was really going into a secular academic environment because college was still a Jewish college. And I was actually a little bit afraid. Was I going to compromise my values? Was I going to be exposed to ideas that were going to harm my religious convictions? I didn't want that to happen. So I made my deal with God. I said, God, help me get through law school without compromising my my religious beliefs, and when your children come to me for help, I will help them. And guess what? God wasted no time in testing me. As soon as I graduated, <laughs> I got involved with Kids at Risk in the Hasidic community. It was just like meeting one woman who told me about her child, and then meeting her child who told me about his friends. And I realized I can't just sit still. I have to help these kids. And, I and what realized were these that, kids
0: struggling with What when you say Kids at Risk?
1: Yeah, well, basically, they were either struggling from academic challenges or whether it was abuse or it was any dysfunction in the home. And a dysfunction in the home doesn't have to be something bad. It could be something like a mother having triplets, or it could be something like a mother just marrying off two children in one year, which will make it impossible for her to focus on her teenager and then who slips between the cracks. So it was realizing these are not bad kids, but they're just making bad choices. I changed as a mother once I realize what's going on. And and, you know, there's an expression in Yiddish, what you do for others, you're doing for yourself. Because I've learned so much being an advocate and a volunteer that it has only helped me with my own children and my own family.
0: What have you learned about parenting?
1: I've learned that, you know, you never stop learning. (laughs) (laughs) You never stop learning. And like I say, I raise my kids by the book, each kid a different book. And every day is a new chapter. You, you, never, you never know too much and you never stop learning and we never stop praying. <laughs> you never stop praying, God, please help me through the next challenge because there's going to be another one. Yeah. Like my mother says, you know, they say like small children, small problems, big children, big problems. And, and I'm, like I say, I always say again and again, I'm really like any other mother. I, I shop in the same supermarket, same grocery store, I'm cooking and baking the same food. And I want it to stay that way. I don't want it to change. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be given to anybody else. I, I love living in Butter Park because I go into the supermarkets, with the grocery stores, I weigh online just like anybody else. And people in up I say, hey, hi, Your Honor. I say, no, in Park is just working.
0: That's
1: it. <laughs> in court, you can say, Your Honor, but in Barapak, I don't want to hear this Your Honor business.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do for these kids at risk? How Did, did you start an organization? Did you, what, what was
1: it? It, it was just slowly like, a, like a grassroots movement. And I met with the kids and I, I interviewed them. I would make gatherings in my home. And then I realized that the most important thing they needed was if they weren't going to go through yeshiva, they needed an education to get jobs, vocational training. So ultimately, I, I started a GED program for them. I wasn't able to continue doing the kumzitzes, the parties, the gatherings, the concerts. I had to focus on one, on one thing. That was education. And um, I, just, I also just speak to them one-on-one. Should they have questions, they follow up, they call me. Well, but now I really try to just have them get enrolled in GD programs so that they could become productive members of society if they can't become Torah scholars. Still remain religious, remain part of the community, but find where you belong, where you fit in.
0: What's been the impact of that?
1: I've seen a great impact. I've seen an impact on the kids that I've remained personally close with. Some of them just like came in and came out of, of, of my life. And then once I started the GED program, it wasn't so much hands-on. It was more like I would write articles. I would just hear about issues. But I no longer get involved as much as I was. Because once mm-hmm. I figured out that I want to have this GED program, then I moved on to my next chesed or pro bono project, which was the Women's EMT Clause and Talk the Women's that. Mission. So that also started just like... I got, it was just a random phone call one summer night, a group of women who were EMTs and labor coaches, they were doulas, wanted me to join a meeting. And they had wanted to join Hatzalah, which is a very good organization. It's a prominent organization that has been serving the Jewish community for more than three decades. However, while they provide an invaluable service and have saved many lives, they just do not allow women to join their core. Why? The answer that I got was that it would be immodest for them to have gender mingling between men and women when they respond to calls. So I said, I understand that. But at the same time, what about inappropriate gender mingling when there's a woman who's giving birth? Doesn't that outweigh the being in the same truck with the female (laughs) EMT? But, you know, what I realized is sometimes when you get the answer and the answer is no, just work with it. I wasn't going to fight. I wasn't going to file claims. I accepted the no was the answer. And that meant a lot of hard work. It meant that I had to become the director of a separate, distinct, all women's EMT corps. It meant I had to go for medical training, go for licensing, deal with all local, all branches of government, local, state, and federal to get this organization up and running. And what i've learned is and i've heard it from more than one person that to change culture it takes between 7 and 10 years and this is ju- this isn't just about starting an organization this is about changing culture so it's a big project but we've seen incredible incredible divine providence siaf adishmaya um we've seen the incredible growth in 2017 Our organization won the New York City Award and New York State Award for EMS Agency of the Year. And it it wasn't because of our size, because we're still small, it was because of our impact that we've made because the world of EMS in New York City never understood why in the Jewish community there are no female EMTs. And to them, this is a real eye-opener. And the other exciting thing that happened was, five years ago, a religious woman who's a filmmaker approached me and she said, you know what? I do documentary films and just hearing what your organization is doing would be an amazing documentary. And I laughed at and I said, you know, we don't even know if we're going to end up launching, but let me speak to my rabbi and see what he says about this film. And what really sold me on the idea is she said, she said to me, the filmmaker, she says, you know, she's modern Orthodox, I'm Hasidic. She says the outside world really has a very stereotypical view of Hasidic women. She said, if you allow me to make this film and show who you women really are, it'll change the world's perspective. It'll be a sanctification of God's name, for what we say, Kiddush Hashem. And that's what sold me. I mean, you tell me I could do something that's going to be a Kiddush Hashem, I'll sanctify God's name. I'm, you know, I'm here. <laughs> you know, I'm here. Because I really feel that there's so much negative media coverage and so much negative press when there's something that's negative. And there's always going to be negative and positive because as long as we're human beings, that's just the way life is. There are good things that happen and there are bad things that happen. But if you don't have the good things to counter the bad things, then the outsider's perspective is, oh, my God, this is a community that only negative things are taking place. And that's so not true. There's so much positive. So that documentary film actually was just completed. And it's now being featured in various film festivals. And it will be released as a film called 93 Queen. And this documentary really is geared for the secular community. It's not geared for the people who live in Bar Pog, Flatbush, Williamsburg. It's geared for the people who don't have a clue as to who the Hasidic people are. And they get a, an amazing view of Hasidim in their own home, a group of women who don't always agree on everything, but who have a mission who are empowered and feel that this is something that we have to do and we're gonna do it.
0: How old is the organization at this point and, and how many women are involved?
1: So we officially started on paper with our license in 2012. I got involved in 2011, but it took, a, it took that long for me to realize that we won't get accepted into the existing core. We have to file for our own licensing. And then from 2012 on, there was lots of recruiting, lots of fundraising. So it's still in the very, very early stages. Sure. It's in the very, very early stages, even though to an outsider, you may seem like, oh my gosh, Fry, you're doing this ready for seven years. But yes, remember, statistics show that to change culture, it takes anywhere between between seven to ten years. So I'm just now entering that time period where we're going to be effective.
0: What's, the, so the, what's over, the what's the cultural shift that you're looking to impact and create?
1: I want women to realize that we ourselves are capable of being providers of emergency care for women. We're not looking to compete, and we're not looking to treat anyone other than women. We just want that when a woman is having an emergency and her modesty is going to be compromised, she should have the option of calling a woman and. Interestingly enough, in the outside world, in the greater part of New York City, that's recognized because in the New York City EMS, it's comprised of men and women. And because I have to go for my own medical training, I've been exposed to that. And when I would be responding to a call and there was a female who was having an emergency, my male counterparts would say to me, Rachel, you do the EKG. Or Rachel, you put the leads on her, or you check her vital signs because she'll feel more comfortable if you do it. And we're talking about the outside, non-Jewish world. So I want to bring what I've learned from the outside world into my own Hasidic community and teach them, Ladies, we can do it. God gave us this innate ability to be caregivers. We need to understand that we're capable but not in a way of like, rah, rah, this is women's rights, because I've been accused of being a radical feminist because of this. And, I, and I'll say this is not about women's rights, just that very often women are right. Just very often when it comes to who I want to treat me when I'm having a medical emergency.
0: You have to love the irony of you importing values of modesty from the outside world into a Hasidic community. Something seems kind of <laughs> counterintuitive about that.
1: It does because the, the flip side is, and the Hasidic community is viewed as oh, you mean you have women who want to run around with lights and sirens and beepers and cell phones? And no, 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 it's not about the action part. It's not about that part. It's about once you're there and you, once you're beside that woman, and whether she's in labor or whether she's having chest pain or whether she fell in the shower. And she's embarrassed because if she were to call the local male corps, they're very fast and the closest person is going to come may just be her next door neighbor. Mm. And she just may be, she just may be embarrassed if she fell in the shower. And while we started to deal primarily with labor and delivery, we found that many of the, in the geriatric population, the women are even more embarrassed of how they look when the young men come which is something that we never even anticipated. Right. I never anticipated that it's the, like I had one woman who told me, actually a colleague of mine, not even from up Barfuck, and I said, you know, you know, Rachel, I really get it, she said, because when I was at the doctor and I had a surgery, she said, no, my body is dilapidated, she said to me. That was her words. And I was embarrassed when this young nurse who was a male was, you know, examining me. Mm. So I can only imagine what it feels like when you're religious, but you know what? I don't think it makes a difference if you're religious or you're not. If you're a woman, you have certain sensitivities. But the only difference is, is that in Barapak, women were, were always taught that this is a man's job. It's only a man who can do it. And I want to just change that. No, women can do it. They can.
0: And, and it sounds like you are. Have you started? Is it a separate organization completely? Is it a women's branch of Hatzala? Like, what? How, how have you structured comes- this?
1: It's completely separate, a separate number, um, separate fire department code, everything is separate and now we're applying for our ambulance license, which is a very big step like i said it's it's a huge step. Hatella is a great organization it took them through the years to get the way they are today, right yeah. so they they worked hard and it didn't take them overnight to be the success that they are and their policy is not to accept women we're going to respect their policy and do it our own way.
0: are you concerned that it will create a situation where people have to think about calling multiple different numbers or, you know, just might end up confusing people in some way.
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I think people, people outside Brooklyn also have different options. They can also call the local volunteers. They can call 911. It exists out there. It's it like I said, it's, it's a cultural change. It definitely is. But I also think that some women, actually avoid making the emergency call, they don't want men to come. So there are often times when you have young teenage girls who are having abdominal pains or women who are having other pains, they say, you know what, I'm not going to call because I'm not going to have men come in and see me like this. So knowing that there are trained, capable women out there may just avoid the delay in calling for help.
0: Incredible. Tell me a little bit about your trajectory towards becoming a judge because you know, again, most lawyers don't become judges. You know, what really inspired you to want to do that? Were you trying to make a certain kind of impact on a, on a different level? What was the impetus? And then how did it actually come about?
1: So one of my family members was a judge at the time that I graduated law school. And I said, hey, you know what? Maybe I can, maybe I can achieve that. Maybe, maybe it is possible. And then as I was nearing my 10 years as a lawyer, I was just finishing paramedic school when he actually retired. And I said to him, you know what, if you really wanna be a judge, run for my original seat. And I said, run, are you kidding? I thought I can get appointed, but I learned that there's two <laughs> ways you can become a judge in New York City. Either the mayor appoints you, or you run an election. But the mayor only appoints people who have certain backgrounds. You either work in the DA's office, or you Hasidic, work in Hasidic State. lawyers
0: are not part of that
1: background? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that, but if you're a Hasidic and you're doing real estate work in Borough Park, you're not going to get the mayor's <laughs>
0: attention. That's what what kind of it. judgeship were you looking for? Was this criminal, civil?
1: So it, it, you don't really look for it. It's just you start off at the bottom, and the bottom is civil court. So I ran for civil court. My background is civil. And lo and behold, to my surprise, I found out about two weeks before the term started that I'm being assigned to criminal court. And I was shocked. And I said, is he this, is this serious? Like, I don't have a criminal background, and I ran for civil court. They said, "No, this is how it goes." And I have to tell you, I, I absolutely love it. I've learned so much about how my background gives me what I need to succeed, and that's really the, my overriding message when I do public speaking: is don't think for one second that my religious values or my Hasidic values held me back. I would argue just the opposite. It, it's what gave me the strength and the backbone to keep on persevering. I said, "Because if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen." It's not about me. I just have to try. So it's always my faith in God that just gives me that strength. And you know what the best thing is? I have the best seat in the house because whichever courtroom I'm assigned to, above me are the words and God we trust. And that always puts me into perspective.
0: What kinds of cases do you see and, and what do you feel in your background has equipped you for this unique role?
1: So I can not talk about specific cases, right. but I could tell you in, in general, I can types, tell you types that. Types of cases, yeah. Yeah, so right now, most of the year, uh, I've done arraignments in the misdemeanor part. I've also spent some time doing other courts, but the majority of the bulk was misdemeanor arraignments. And I've learned that my background as a mother and a grandmother gave me that insight, understanding. My background as a religious Jew of being thoughtful in judging others, not jumping to conclusions. These are all ethics that are part of the Pirkei Avos that we always learn. All of that was always in the back of my mind. I have to be thoughtful. I have to sit and think. I can't just, just quickly rush through any case. And then I have to think, hey, this could be my kid. It may be someone else's 16 year old kid that got arrested, but this could have been mine. It could have been my, it could have been my, my, my nephew. Why did he get here? Why is he here? So as opposed to just, like, being quick and judgmental, you know, no pun intended, I want to look a little bit beneath that surface, which I have the background for. What I've also learned about the New York City criminal system, the criminal justice system, there is a very big push for supervised release, for programs, for assistance, things that I didn't know actually exist. in Because the jails the are just overcrowded? Course. I don't know if that's the reason for it, because I came in, you know, in, in 2017. But I think that's just with the pendulum shifting and when I came into the court system. So do you know that in the criminal court in Brooklyn, there's a GED program? There was a GED class going on. There, there There's so much service. There's so much... Social workers and therapists and mental health professionals, um, drug treatment parts, veteran treatment parts. There's so many treatment parts to help people who get arrested because there's an understanding that this person who may have committed a crime may have an underlying problem that, if addressed, can solve it and, and, you know, prevent recidivism.
0: Are you ever frustrated by the recidivism that's there? Or do you feel like there's a revolving door? Or are kids actually responding Uh, to these programs?
1: I think it's a mixed bag. I think you have both. You have some that can't be helped. You have some that could be helped. Um, The statistics show that there has been an improvement, that there has been an improvement. I've seen certain cases that there's been improvement. It's just, it's so much of a case-by-case basis, but every person deserves that opportunity. Every person deserves that chance. And it's my background as a mother, knowing that... Every kid is going through something, every person, every human being is going through something when, when, when they commit a crime or when they do something they may, may not even know that it's a crime when they do it. So it's, it's, not, it's not about being soft on crime. I think it's being smart with crime.
0: I was going to ask if, if you've gotten a reputation for being soft, given that you seem to be favoring no. these kinds of programs.
1: No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not soft at all when I have to be firm. I'm, I'm very firm. You know, if I look at, if I see something and again, you know, it's just, it's, I I pray to God to guide me because I'm only a human being. I can only do the best that a human being can do. And you, what I try to do is, you know, understand as much about the case as possible. I have great supervisors. I have great support staff in the court. So if I have certain questions, there's always someone to talk to.
0: I imagine there was a massive learning curve going from real estate law in Brooklyn to being on a criminal court, a completely different basket of, of issues and even just laws that, that you're dealing with? Like, mm-hmm. How was that learning curve for you? How has it been? And what are some of the challenges in, in that environment?
1: So first of all, if I wasn't a religious person, I would have never undertaken anything. Because if I believed that it was me that was responsible for the success of my efforts, then I, would, I wouldn't even try. But knowing that it's only God who's, who controls the success, I, I would try and I felt that, hey, wait a second, I ran for civil court, but it was God who put me here. God wants me to be sitting in this, and I'm sitting in this courtroom, it's because God wants me to sit here. It means I'm supposed to be here. And that's like what my teachers in base tackle have taught me. Everybody has a purpose. Everything that happens comes from God. So if I'm here in this day, there's a reason why I had to be here. That's really how I've overcome these learning curves, because otherwise, you, you become paralyzed and you just can never go forward in life if you think that it's, it's me. It's me. No, it's not me. A person has to try and God is the one who controls the, the success or the failure of your efforts.
0: Justin, starting to wrap up, criminal justice reform is a very hot topic now. There's countless podcasts about it and you know people talking about innocence projects and and many things of that nature. Is that something that you've encountered at all, that you've gotten involved with in any way? Do you have a, a strong position on, on some of those issues?
1: So as a judge, I don't think I can answer that question. All I could tell you is that there are many seminars that are offered for judges to, you know, to enlighten us, and I attend as many as I can.
0: Got it. Fair <laughs> enough. And uh, I won't push further there, and then just finally um, – you've done so many different things in your, in your life and in, especially in your public community-oriented life, whether it's working with these kids at risk, whether it's the, the Women's EMT Corps, and so many different things. What's the next frontier in your mind? What's, <laughs> what's still missing? Like what problems, or as you would say, maybe not problems, but issues, do you see that are out there that remain unaddressed, that still tug at your heart, Maybe you're not in a position at this very moment to deal with them. Maybe you are. But what's still out there that's broken that people, that the community can really repair and address?
1: So I think that the other projects that I'm working on, I'm not prepared to share right now. (laughs) Not that much I'll say. Um, In terms of the next frontier, I really hope, with God's help, that I should be able to rise within the court system. I would love to be able to achieve higher judgeships with God's help at the right time in the right place.
0: What would that allow you to, to accomplish?
1: To deal with different cases. I've been dealing now with misdemeanors in in the arraignment part. Yeah, I'd like to get involved on, on a larger level what you know on a different level in terms of working within the justice system.
0: Well, Judge Rocky Fryer, we're greatly uh, appreciative of your time. My I, pleasure. I, I appreciate we can end on a bit of a mysterious note, and that will okay. allow us to move forward to some of these. Uh, future achievements and accomplishments, uh, the the new projects, as we say, in the next frontier. And of course, uh, we also look forward to watching you rise and in that process to bringing the light of your Jewish uh, heritage and wisdom to many, many more people and to allowing the broader world to appreciate these incredible values that you cherish so deeply that you have emerged with from this community. And we really, really thank you for your service and for your time today. Judge Rocky Fryer, thank pleasure. you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And I, and I will tell you, though, I, I'll make an admission to you that I was totally caught off guard that I got such public interest in my story. I haven't been able to, to get away with it. Like, people keep <laughs> on calling me. And, and, and every time someone, called, even your request, I said, I never did a podcast before. But I feel like this sense of commitment and this obligation and this debt to God, that if God gave me this opportunity, I owe it to him. I have to just spread the word that it's only with by the grace of God that I achieved this position. And I tell people when I was running, I said, if you can't vote to me, pray for me, pray <laughs> for my success, that I should be able to achieve more and help more people.
0: Well, you mentioned before that anytime someone asks you to, to do something that would create a, a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, you can't right. resist. If I had to sort of summarize the raison d'etre of the podcast, that that's it for me is trying to, showcase and feature incredible Jewish people who are leveraging their Jewish backgrounds and values to make great impact in the world. And you certainly fit that bill. And, and I'm glad you didn't resist you. and you joined us. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Take Had care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.